to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for listening and making commitment to your learning. We hope everyone is doing well. We're your hosts. I'm Yvonne Brandenburg, joined by the lovely Jordan Porter. Hey, girl. Hello. hello. Hi. <laughs> and don't um don't don't take this amiss, but we're we're super excited because we're also joined by this amazing person, and her name is Tasha McNerney. Hello, hey, Tasha. What's up, guys? Thanks so much for having me. Tasha, um, you're one of my like vet tech crushes, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and Tasha, you guys probably know her name because we've talked about her before. And way back when, um, when we, when we had our COVID episode, um, you were in that, that huge group where we were like, what is going to happen with this COVID thing? Um, and I'm pretty sure that's, that was about two years ago. Yep. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so uh, what survived? is going to happen with this COVID thing? Anybody figured it know. out yet? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's just masks forever. And washing and masks forever. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, I'm team anesthesia, so I pretty much was already living masks forever <laughs> at work. Yeah, right. so for me, it was just like, okay, so I'm just, just wearing this outside of the OR now. It's fine. Right. I know it's really funny because my husband's like, oh, masks. And I'm like, eh, eh, whatever. I'm kind of used to yeah. wearing them because I would help in surgery all the time. So I'm like, it's just a little bit longer now that I'm wearing it. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who, for some reason, don't know who Miss Tasha McNerney is, she's got a little alphabet soup and we'll, uh, we'll tell you what it is. So she's a CVT, she's a CVPP, and she has a VTS and anesthesia. So what is, um, what does CVPP mean in case someone has never seen that before? Sure. So a CVPP is a certified veterinary pain practitioner. So this is kind of like getting a specialty in pain management. Um, I shouldn't say kind of, it is. Um, It is a designation given out by the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management. And it says that you understand and know how to treat and et cetera, recognize anything from acute surgical pain all the way to longer chronic pain Um, You're able to give kind of consults on maladaptive pain and the pain response and how we treat it both pharmacologically and for some non-pharma options as well. So for me, the reason I really wanted to go for my CVPP was because I really was interested in, you know, I'm interested in anesthesia and I love anesthesia uh, and pain management, but also kind of chronic pain management, right? How do we manage those arthritic old kitties that maybe don't get as much recognition, right? Because we know that OA in dogs is a big thing, but how often Mm -hmm. are we really treating osteoarthritis in our older cats? And especially when I saw in practice, we might see behavioral changes associated with untreated pain. And to me, that's really fascinating. Um, I am a complete anatomy nerd, like anatomy and physiology. Um, At one point in college, I did think that I was just going to be, I was just going to get a degree in anatomy. And I was just going to teach anatomy because I think it was so fascinating. Um, But I think that 
anesthesia and pain management is one of those things for people who are really physiology nerds, like anesthesia and pain management are of the things where you can watch physiology play out in front of you in real time. And to me, mm -hmm. that I, I get really geeked out about that. And I, I think it's really fascinating. And yeah, I love all the aspects of anesthesia and pain management. So if anybody's interested in becoming a CVPP or just really loves pain management, I would suggest to go to the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management, IVAPM.org, and you can find out more if you're interested in becoming a CVPP as well. Now yeah, you and also do other things too. So you're a host of a <laughs> podcast as well. So yes. the Veterinary <laughs> Anesthesia Nerds podcast, and then you're a founder of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds um, just all together with Darcy Palmer and Steven Sattel, right? Yes. Yeah. So we run the Facebook group of veterinary anesthesia nerds. Uh, it started really small with really just a handful of people working in anesthesia. And uh, right now we have over 65,000 members around the world uh, that just get on and talk nothing but anesthesia and pain management. We talk about anesthesia cases uh, and sometimes even in real time, like people will say, hey, I have this dog coming in today for a dentistry it has a heart murmur, it has this, 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 what do you guys think of my plan? And we can go back and forth. And there are a lot of boarded anesthesiologists on that page. There are a lot of different VTSs from different disciples. So you get a really good kind of mixing of a lot of different opinions, um, which, you know, as Facebook can be good or bad, but also <laughs> right. um, we as the admins work really, really hard um, to keep this page very timely, very up to date. We want to make sure that if people are quoting studies, their recent studies, we want to make sure that people are critically thinking about things and, you know, really reading uh, some of the studies that are published and how we can, you know, take, you know, some of the research that we're seeing and use it to the best advantage of our patients. So the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Facebook page has become a really great resource for just, you know, general in-clinic anesthesia and pain management and what's going on in the world of anesthesia. Yeah, I, I by the way, um, I love that group because it, it is great to see that collaboration and you guys are amazing at keeping it very professional and relevant to a lot of people, right? And um that's one thing that I love about that group that yes, there's a ton of people in it, but you guys do an amazing job monitoring things. Um, so yes, you work hard and it definitely shows that, that you guys work hard on it. Cause it's, if you guys have not joined that group, um, and you're interested in anything anesthesia, I definitely recommend it because it, it's like case studies, which is super cool. Um, and you, and even if that doesn't specifically pertain to you in your practice, you can get like little nuggets out of it, which is, which is really cool. Like yeah, sometimes I'm I, like, oh. I, mean, I, I learn <laughs> all the time. I learn from people, you know, um, sometimes somebody will put something, I don't know, I think we were talking about opioids recently and just like dosing of opioids and that kind of thing. And it'll spark something for me to go, oh yeah, I, I guess I always have done it this way. So could I be doing it a different way or approaching it from a different you know, perspective mm. or trying a different dose and seeing if that does in fact work and what's, you know, the evidence behind it and what is the anesthesia, you know, some anesthesiologists in uh, California might say one thing and then I'll talk to a colleague in Canada and they have this other thing. So it's just bringing everything together to really collaborate in the best way, which is ultimately only going to benefit our patients. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think the fact that, cause there's not a lot of board and anesthesiologists in, in the world. <laughs> um, and so I think it's really cool that they're also involved in the, in the Facebook group because having that as a resource, I mean, that's, that's huge. Cause most practices are, are never going to see that, right? Like they're never going to have an anesthesiologist that's part of it. So being yeah, able to have that as like a resource is, is awesome. 100%. We're very fortunate to have, you know, just some brilliant anesthesiologists on there who are willing to get, you know, this is, a, it's a Facebook group. Nobody's getting paid for this. So for them to like sit down after work and take time to answer somebody's question about, you know, cardiac output. Um, we have right. some amazing, we have some amazing anesthesiologists on there. So definitely like, you know, Kristen Messenger, always fantastic. Like Dr. Bryce Dooley, she's, she's so great at answering anything cardiac anesthesia related. Andrea Coniglia, Jamie Gaynor, like there's just so many. Sheila, I mean, uh, Sheila Robertson. I mean, come on, Sheila Robertson <laughs> on Anesthesia Nerds telling people about feline pain. Like anything Sheila Robertson says, you're going to listen to and do. So yeah, we have a That's pretty awesome. great group of anesthesiologists. Um, and to kind of go along with that group, because I, this is amazing, but you guys have your veterinary anesthesia nerds conference, the symposium that, it, well, so this is the third or fourth year, I think. This, this year will be the fifth year, actually, fifth year. Um, but we did okay. take a two year, we took a two year hiatus, um, <sighs> you know, 20, 2020 and 2021, we didn't want to be in person, we wanted to make sure, you know, again, everybody gets safe, everybody gets vaccinated, get boosted, let's right. figure this thing out. Um, and we're back, we're going to be back this year in 2022. So, so after our hiatus, very exciting. Um, we're just, I just got confirmation. In fact, today from one of our speakers, uh, we usually have two anesthesiologists and two VTS speakers. So we have four speakers. We do a two days worth of lecture, and then we do an optional third day um, hands-on wet lab in regional anesthesia oh. techniques. So like all the local blocks. Uh, and this year we're going to do be pretty heavy on ultrasound guided local blocks. And that's honestly, this is, listen, you know, one of the benefits of running your own conference is if you're really interested in something, <laughs> you just schedule a speaker uh, to, to talk about what you want to hear about. And then it happens. So, so there you go. Yeah. So She's like, I my personally, <laughs> no yeah. taken. Yeah, we need to schedule our own yeah. uh, veterinary conference. Yeah. Uh, so uh, um, uh. I just one day, you know, as with most things, I just one day was like, I just really like anesthesia, and nothing against these big conferences. Like it's fun to go to like IVEX and these big conferences. They have they have a you know the speakers are great and seeing everybody is great, um, but. Sometimes I just want to sit down and I just want to hear about anesthesia, like no offense yeah. to what's going on with, you know, diabetes or anything. Um, <laughs> but I don't really, uh, I just want to know about anesthesia. Uh, and so I thought, <laughs> right. man, it would be really cool if there was a conference that was just veterinary anesthesia and that's it. And I mentioned it to a friend of mine and he was like, yeah, that would be cool. Why don't you just do it? And I was like, well, but I, like, I'm not a conference. So I like, I would need to find a place and like get sponsorship and do that. And he was like, yeah, you should just do it. I was like, oh, okay. And I know, I know this sounds like really flip, but I did. I just emailed some people of like mine. I just got, said to Steven and Darcy, Hey, like we should try to do this. And they were very gung ho about it. 
And so the three of us just worked really diligently to like secure a venue, get sponsorship, get speakers, like hear from everybody. And it came together because other people were of the same mind. Like they wanted to hear about nothing but anesthesia and pain management, or, you know, there's practices where people are scared of anesthesia. So they want to make sure they're getting, you know, really good information. So, and you know, it's in Las Vegas, so it's kind of a party. when we're there <laughs> Well, and, and, and I think the cool thing about that is, um, you guys are technicians, right? So you're gonna, you're you're gonna gear it towards not just doctors when we're talking anesthesia, but also a huge part of that is technicians, which is, which is why this is cool. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, like that was a big thing right from the start. Like our, like one of our pillars at veterinary anesthesia nerds is accessible education and collaborative care. Right. In order to have really collaborative care for our patients, we need our doctors and our techs to be coming to the table together with their shared education, experience, et cetera, to map out an anesthetic plan for that patient. And that's going to provide the best quality of care. So for us, it's really important that not only do we have technician and boarded veterinarian speakers at the the event, but we also are our audience. We want our audience to be doctors and technicians because that's really important for us. Nice. Love it. This is why we had Tasha on, by the way, because <laughs> Jordan and I were like, oh, we're going to do an anesthesia episode. And we're like, Ooh, we really need to have someone on that knows more than us. Like we, we know anesthesia, but Tasha has like anesthesia, not the drugs, but anesthesia molecules, like embedded into every part of her being, She's like, I live, yeah. breathe, and eat. I do. I mean, Tasha yeah. has anesthesia tattooed on her. So this is yeah, true. I do. I do. I, do. I forgot I'm like, about that. I'm, <laughs> I, I mean, everybody knows I'm a dork. Like, I'm not trying to hide it anymore. You know, I mean? <laughs> no. great. I'm not trying to be cool. Like, I, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm fully in dork mode. That's fine. But my favorite, like, I love all. I, I'm basically working on an anesthesia sleeve tattoos. Um, but you guys ever seen like even watch like top chef right and it's like a big thing for chefs like to have tattoos or be heavily tattooed yeah and there's some chefs that will get tattoos and i've seen this of like their favorite knives right because that's a tool of your trade and i was like oh i really love that idea and that so um for the people at home who can't see this video one of my favorite tattoos (laughs) is on each of my arms i have Mac and Miller. So I have laryngoscope blades and on one arm I have the Miller blade and on the other one I have the Macintosh because don't get me started on laryngoscope blades because ugh, it's such a issue of mine. Um, it's like I you're love, passionate about it or something. <laughs> what's that? I'm so, yeah. I mean, laryngoscope. <laughs> Um, but I got these laryngoscope blade tattoos and the reaction from people when they see it, like if I'm out at the beach or something has been very interesting. No one has guessed it's laryngoscope blades. Um, but at least two people have asked me if they were, um, pins for grenades. Um, and so I don't know <laughs> what it says about me. They just look at me and they're like, Ooh, this girl, she's pins crazy. for grenades. Yeah, she's, she's a little unstable, but I mean, you know, <laughs> do work in vet med, You're like, so. it's a medical instrument. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, aren't we all yeah. just a touch unstable in vet med? Like, yeah, I mean, say, just... like, yeah, we, we do work in vet med. So, <laughs> so we're going to, this week, we're going to dive into basics um, of anesthesia, which, you know, we all had anesthesia in school, but I think um, 
especially once you're out in practice, I, I don't know if everybody just continues to expand on their knowledge of anesthesia, which is, which is sad because we do a lot of anesthesia, whether you're in general practice or specialty, I mean, anesthesia, that's one of the big things that differentiates us from being credentialed or licensed and not right. I mean, that's, that's one of our big feathers in our caps. <laughs> so yeah. I think, you know, um, we could all get better about keeping up to date and learning. Cause it is, it is definitely evolving. Like when I started in, in veterinary medicine, the anesthesia was very different than what it is today. Um, some clinics still had halothane. <laughs> we were just, everybody was switching over to the, to the ISO and then SIBO got introduced. So I think, you know, it, it is, it is something where we can always learn. So we're going to, we're going to let Tasha tell us smart things. So for this episode, we're going to get it appraise approved. Um, definitely, you know, if you're in the membership, we'll have you guys complete the quiz to get your certificate. Non-members, obviously this is a great self-study. So just, just kind of as a reminder on that. And then um, let's, let's dive in unless there's anything we need to touch on before we get into this, Jordan. I think we're Good I think we're now. good. I'm, I'm excited to hear from Ms. Tasha. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'll sit back and listen. <laughs> all right. Well, here we go. Um, all right. So I think the best place to kind of start is like defining what the heck anesthesia is. So I'll let you, uh, Okay. Dive I mean, into this because I, I don't want to sound really, stupid. We can get really heavy into it, but I mean, every you got you know, y'all can you know use Google. Um, but basically, anesthesia is loss of sensation, right? So we don't have those signals going to the brain. Now, whether we're talking about general anesthesia, right, where we have an inhalant anesthetic, or we're under IV drugs and we have general anesthesia cutting off the sensations, or we have something like local regional anesthesia, which is just cutting off the sensation to one area or body part, right? So when you guys go to the dentist, you have regional anesthesia used in, you know, mm. around your teeth for an infiltrative block, or if you've ever, you know, if there's any women in the audience who have ever had a child, um, you might've had an epidural or a spinal, right? Which then cuts off the sensation uh, in one area or you might have had to undergo surgery for some reason. And then you have a general anesthetic, which can now you're cutting off sensation to the central and spinal cord and brain. Um, so there are different levels or different ways that we can provide an anesthetic experience. But really what we're trying to do is take away those nociceptive or painful or any kind of detrimental signals that are going into the spinal cord into the brain. Uh, because most of the things that we're about to do, especially when we're talking about surgery are gonna be painful. Right. I, it's, it's so crazy when we think about it that way, because thank God we have anesthesia. Oh yes. Because oh <laughs> it used to be, we didn't. And so <clears throat> surgery and all sorts of things happen without that pain control. Um, and we know now like pain cascades and all that and, and what it does to healing. So, you know, I just picture like the movies where they're like, you know, civil bite war and they're stick. like i gotta amputate a leg here yeah. bite on the stick and they're like we'll hold you down and you're like uh so i i appreciate <laughs> anesthesia for sure oh yeah i always yeah i i mean obviously i love anesthesia 
So I definitely appreciate how far we've come. I mean, it's certainly exciting to see like where we might go in the future as well. Um, mm. If anybody is like really, really want to geek out on some old school um, anesthesia and you ever make your way to Philadelphia, like hit me up. I will take you to the Mutcher Museum, which is a museum of medical history. Um, and it actually will show you like kind of what we did for pain management in the 17 and 1800s when America was oh. first warming. And it is uh, like terrifying, uh, but also you leave there very grateful for modern medicine. Yeah, it is wow. very yeah. interesting. Actually, and that's really important to understand too, while you're listening to this episode, Tasha just said it, it's, it's like at least an eight week course. So <laughs> yeah, don't think you're going to know everything with this episode. <laughs> no, but hopefully, hopefully after you listen to this episode, you can go into your clinic and be like, Hey, let's try this. Or maybe, you know, this is something we didn't consider before. Yeah. And, um, and I think this is something too, to just just make a distinction too. So we're going to talk about like pre-op and then anesthetic monitoring. And, um, I think one of the things that is, is sometimes a, well, it's a tech utilization thing. Um, I'm just like, as far as like creating a, an anesthetic plan. Right. And I think, I think sometimes we forget that as technicians, we can look at the patient, we can look at the, um, kind of everything that's going on and we should be starting to think about some of those anesthetic and pre-op considerations, right? Because, Mm -hmm. um, especially when you're first starting, like kind of go in your head and be like, okay, I think this, this, and this. And then maybe the doctor gives you the plan and you can be like, yes, you know, I, I kind of stick in the same thing. Um, and then again, uh, we, we hope you have that working relationship with your doctor. You know, you get to the point where you go, okay, wait, before you tell me what the plan is, here's what I was thinking. And then see if, you know, that's the same. And then maybe, you know, you come up with something that the doctor didn't even think about, and then you can start collaborating. And then once you build that trust, like you can create an op plan hand it to the doctor, have them sign off on it, or maybe adjust whatever they need to. And you go forward and that can save the doctors a lot of time and, you know, makes you more useful in your practice. So I think, you know, it, yes, they need to be the ones prescribing the medications, but that doesn't mean that we don't offer an op plan to them and then go from there. Like, yes, they have to approve it. Obviously you can't, you can't just give drugs without talking to a doctor, Yeah, <laughs> but you Don't can make recommendations based on, you know, the case review. So, um, that's just, I just want to make sure everybody's kind of aware of that part. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important aspect and we were kind of rolling around with that before we started recording, but I think that, you know, technician utilization is such an important hot topic right now in vet med. And especially when it comes to having a busy surgery day and having a busy surgery practice, Yeah. Uh, if you want to maintain that robust surgery practice at a high level of care, you need to have anesthesia and surgery technicians that are well-trained. But also you need to have an environment, right. Where there is psychological safety for them to say, 
hey, I know you were thinking about butorphanol for this, this one, but uh, I think that it might be a little painful. Do you mind, like maybe we could switch it up to buprenorphine and just start the conversation with your doctor. Mm. Like that's the kind of environment that I like working in. You know, I'm fortunate enough to work at I relief at practices that have boarded anesthesiologists. So I get to constantly kind of bounce things off of them. And, oh, you know, why would they choose this vasoactive over this one? And why we might want to do this procedure first as opposed to this. Um, so I think that again, just collaborating with your doctors and having that team approach is going to ultimately provide the best experience for your patient and then grow yourself as a technician, right? Like you said, once you get to that level of trust, once you get to that level of trust where your doctor is like, yep, I know, you know what you're doing. I know you have read the record, right? It's great for the doctor to read the record. And I want the doctor to read the record, but I will not, I personally, Tasha McNerney, I will not put something under anesthesia and I will not take over an anesthetic case unless I have read the record. I personally have listened to that animal with a stethoscope before administering drugs. I have like looked over this animal. And that's why I say to technicians, pre-op before anesthesia happens, your doctor might give you a list of what you want drug wise. I want, my expectation is that you as an anesthesia technician have met that animal I always meet the animal, right? I'm not drawing up drugs until I meet the animals because what if you go in there and your doctor has said, yeah, let's give everybody two mics per kick of dexmedetomidine, which is might be work for some, but let's say you have an anxious bouncing off the walls, Jack Russell Terrier. You think two <laughs> mics per kick of dexmedetomidine is going to do anything to him? No. So I want to go meet the animal, evaluate their personality, see what their anxiety level is, look over their blood work. If it's not going to stress the animal out too much, I want to listen to them with a stethoscope. Do you hear any abnormalities? Do you hear any arrhythmias? Do you hear any crackles? Do you hear anything that is out of the ordinary? And if so, go talk to your doctor about it before you administer those drugs. Like those are some pre-op considerations, right? Everybody's like, what do I am looking for? Blood work, you know, before anesthesia. (laughs) In all honesty. You're like, that's one small part of everything. It's so small. And there was even a study in 20... 2018, um, which looked at whether or not preoperative blood work actually changed the uh, anesthetic plan. And of five anesthesiologists that were um, used in this study, um, I think only one of them changed their plans. And that was Mm. 64% of the time. So even amongst anesthesiologists, there's going to be, you know, again, because everybody has a different way of doing things, et cetera. But even amongst anesthesiologists, there's not a consensus that, you know, preoperative or cert, a certain preoperative blood work is the gold standard, or we have to have this. Yeah, it's mm. going to make, it's going to make a difference as far as NSAID goes, but is it going to make a huge difference? You know, what your ALT is when I'm looking at hydromorphone versus buprenorphine? No. So mm-hmm. some of these things, right, we, we do care a lot about preoperatively and some I might let slide, right? If, if you don't have a CBC, well, okay. Like I, it's not the worst thing. We can still do it, right? But if you haven't put your hands on the animal, you haven't looked at their mucous membranes, you haven't listened to their chest, we, you know, <laughs> then no, those are things like, those are non-negotiable. Those are things that we do have to do pre-op. And I do want to empower technicians to get involved. And even though your doctor has done a physical exam before surgery, even though they have listened and they said everything is a go, I want you to put your hands on that animal. Again, not if it's a stressful ant, like, you know, don't get bit, <laughs> but right. if it's an animal, 
If you can put your hands on it before you've administered any drugs, you can listen to their chest, you can get a feel for their pulses, look at their mucous membranes, check their CRT. I want you guys as technicians to know those things before we get under anesthesia. Because once we get mm -hmm. under anesthesia, right, and we turn on that inhalant anesthetic, as one anesthesiologist I used to work with says, once that inhalant is on, the roller coaster begins. So you better be ready for that roller coaster, whether it be hypotension, yeah. hypoventilation, whatever, you better be ready for it. So if I look at you and I say, hey, did this patient have these, you know, weak pulses before we got started with anesthesia? I want you to be able to tell me yes or no. Right? Like, was his mucous membrane color always this muddy before anesthesia or is this drugs? I want you to be able to tell me. Again, mm. within the realm of reason. I obviously don't want you to go in with a terrified, you know, fear bite Jack Russell Terrier and get yeah. like, you know, Tasha McNerney told me I have to look in your mouth. No, <laughs> like, we've, we've talked about caution. that before about like doing our own physical exams and stuff like that. I think it's super important yeah. just because you want to get a sense for like what murmurs sound like and things like that. Um, so we've definitely, well, and about knowing that. what the normals are for that patient. Yeah. It's exactly. so huge. Super important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. that brings yeah. up another thing, knowing what the normals are for that patient, right? In school, we all learn here's a normal heart rate for a dog. Right. But you guys and the people who are listening in practice know that a normal heart rate for a Chihuahua or Yorkshire Terrier is going to be very <laughs> different than a normal heart rate for a Newfoundland. So I want you to get to know what's normal for that patient, right? And if that patient comes in and it's a Chihuahua and it comes in and you listen to it and before any drugs are on board, it has a heart rate of 62 talk to your doctor. We want to see like, okay, what's going on here? This is probably not right. Check those pulses, maybe do a pre-op ECG, that kind of yeah. thing. Alternately, you have a Newfoundland that comes in with a heart rate of 240. Hey, something's not right here. Let's double check this. Let's get a doctor involved. And I think that the technicians are so integral in catching these little things that may yeah. slip under the radar. Yeah. And I, and, and, and like we've talked about it. So just to back up just a step too, because I don't want people to think this is what Tasha is saying, because I, I get scared sometimes. <laughs> Tasha's not saying don't do blood work and it's not important. No, no. <laughs> Tasha was saying blood work does not always affect what drug choices we're going to be using. We Correct. still want to do our pre-op blood work, especially if they've never had blood work before, right? Like if, Correct. if it's a young animal, they've never had blood done. Like we should have their baseline. Cause again, that's baseline. We want to know what their normal is because it's like, if you have surgery and let's say they don't do well and post-op we're checking a PCV and it's down to 30, we'd be like, Oh, 30 is okay. Well, what if it was 65 pre-op, right? Like that's a huge change, but if pre-op, right. it was 35, not a big deal. So yes, don't anybody take what Tasha said and get it all twisted. And so don't, we, we don't, don't need blood work. That's not what she I, said. I appreciate <laughs> blood work. Okay. I appreciate, uh, I definitely want to know blood work. And again, yeah. from an anesthesia standpoint, a lot of it is more, how am I going to manage the case afterwards? Right. Because yeah. if I have a patient that we see has known kidney disease, we might leave them on fluids a little bit longer or choose things or omit NSAIDs. Right. If we have a dog in liver failure, we're going to be very cautious with certain classes of drugs. Um, but it's more that, you know, if, if you have a, a trauma come in and I need to put this animal under anesthesia immediately, um, yeah. and give it some drugs and do like a rapid sequence intubation or something, 
in those cases, I'm not usually saying, hey, actually, let's wait for that lab work to come back. Right. Because right? it's not right. going to change what we do, right? You're going to give yeah. the fentanyl and the medaz no matter what. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then get your blood in and see. And then and you get it. your blood work and then see where <laughs> you can go from there and what, you know, better choices and that kind of thing. Uh, but what I'm saying is that blood work is really great. But if I had to look at what are my absolute must haves before proceeding with the anesthesia, emergency or elective, like, you know, a good, thorough, hands-on, if possible, if the animal will tolerate it, physical exam for me is going to be like first thing, like we have to have that. I have to know like what's going on. What is the the state of that this animal is in before we put drugs into them? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and uh, yeah, (laughs) I think we've, we've talked about it uh, a few times in several episodes, the importance of physical (laughs) exams. Yeah. And, and I think, and that's, and I think Tasha's making it one thing that I think is really important too on that is you'll have clinics where like one person induces anesthesia and like someone switches out because they need to go to lunch or whatever, whatever the reason is. And I think it's really important to understand if you're taking over a case, like you need to be just as much familiar with that case as the initial person doing the induction. Um, because I've seen it so many times where it's like a handoff and you're like, what, 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 what are we doing? Like, what is this procedure? Mm -hmm. Like what kind of animal is it? And and they just go, Oh, it's this, this, and this, and here are your parameters that, Mm -hmm. that we've been monitoring. And you're just like, I hate taking over anesthesia like that. Like, I'm just, (laughs) I'm just like, Whoa, like I need to familiarize myself with this case because unfortunately it does happen where there's, you know, if you're in a five hour long procedure, (laughs) there, there do need, there will be times where a switch off needs to happen, but hopefully if you are in that situation, you can prep, look at the case, you know, check out some stuff, see what the vitals were, figure out what the heck the procedure is. And then, you know, look at like, what, what drugs do we have on board? What's running already? Like, what do we have going on? How have they reacted to things? And, and that, I mean, it's not pre-op, but it is pre-op for you. Right. Yeah. Wherever you're coming so. in, just be prepared. And that's the thing about anesthesia, right? There's that old, like kind of meme that's like anesthesia is like eight hours or, you know, seven hours of boredom and like 30 minutes <laughs> of sheer chaos. And that's true. <laughs> and do you know why it is that way? It's because we prepare the crap out of everything. That is what yeah. we do. We spend hours in preparation, right? I, unless it's an emergency and I have to really get something on the table quickly, I'm spending a good hour, hour oh, yeah. prep for like a good, for like, if I know something, right, it's a hemo abdomen, it's going to, it's going to go to surgery, it probably is going to need pressors, it might need blood products. I'm gathering all that stuff before the animal even gets induced, because the last thing I want to do is decide the animal needs, right? Oh, I need you to thaw plasma right now. Like, no, I like, we want to be thinking about that and discussing that before. So that's really for pre-op considerations. If you are the tech in charge of that animal, I want you not only to go and look at the patient and familiarize yourself with that patient's record, um, but then what are we doing? Are you about to do uh, a spay? Is it something that's considered mildly painful? Are you about to do an FHO? Is this a patient with rib fractures? What's the anticipated level of pain? And then 
look at the supplies you have on hand and how are you going to use what supplies you have on hand to deal with any unexpected complications, right? If I know that a patient, you know, could be hypovolemic, they, their blood pressure is already kind of, you know, crap. And it's a, you know, I don't know, let's see, it's a, it's a shepherd with a torsion because they're always shepherds. Um, right. because it's a shepherd with a torsion and now it's already in shock and we're dealing with some, you know, we, we need to get dopamine going and we might want to get norepi going and that kind of stuff. Like you want to be thinking ahead, what supplies do I have on hand and how am I going to get ready to deal with those unexpected complications? So if you think, Hey, this cat is about to be under anesthesia for four hours for all these extractions. And it's an older cat with kidney issues and might need to start some dopamine. Like, don't wait until the patient is hypotensive to then go find the syringe pump, go find the, like, have that stuff in the room with you. So you're ready. Do your calculations ahead of time. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I tell people like, that's, that's really the, the biggest thing for anesthesia. And I think in veterinary medicine, if we look at human medicine compared to veterinary medicine, I think that's one thing that, you know, human medicine, like they are going to spend hours of prep before they get mm. to the actual procedure. Where in vet med, I, I know that staffing is an issue, but at the same time, you know, if you look at it, I mean, there's a reason why we have higher um, morbidity and mortality in veterinary medicine. It's just because that we don't have the same level of training. We don't have the same, you know, anesthetic monitoring on all of our patients. We don't have the same level of prep and the number of people keeping eyes on that animal. And I think that that's something mm. that hopefully we will work towards in the future with veterinary medicine as more people, you know, hopefully get interested in really quality anesthesia and really good patient care anesthetically wise uh, and mm. patient monitoring and, and how that plays into it and just getting themselves as educated as possible to provide a really good anesthetic experience for that animal, right? It's not just about writing numbers down on a paper. It's about understanding, like looking at your patient, what's going on with your patient physiology wise, and what is that monitor telling you? And how does that, what right. that monitor is telling you play into what you're actually seeing? Yeah. Yes. Very true. Um, and if you, so you've got all of your prep, you've got your supplies, I, I do the same thing. Like I have everything prepped ahead of time. I'm like, okay, what do I need? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think this, I mean, Jordan, you, you went to Tasha's lecture at BMX about, um, some local, local loss. loss. So, so <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you ever get a chance to listen to her lecture about local blocks, it's, it's awesome. But, um, if you ever get a chance I, to listen to Tasha lecture about anything, <laughs> it's always, it's always wonderful. Like she's so good. She's so funny. Like it's always worth listening and dropping in on one of her lectures. Well, thank you. Yeah. Local blocks is one of those things that I, uh, I mean, it's like one of those things I'm passionate about, like the other 85 things in anesthesia I'm passionate about. Um, but, you know, local blocks, and I say this in the lecture, I want people to think about local anesthesia the same way they think about induction agents. So there's, mm. you're going to use an induction agent on every animal that you're about to intubate, right? So if you're about to do anything painful, laceration repair, if it is a neuter procedure, if it is, again, a, a TPLO, if it, anything that you're about to do painful, there is a way that you can local block it. So I want you guys to oh, think, wow. how can we incorporate a local block or not? How can we, what local block is appropriate for this patient? So the same way you think, what pre-op opioid am I going to use? What induction agent am I going to use? What local block am I going to use? Wow. That's 
it's kind of mind-blowing to be like instead yeah. of being like ooh, can we do a local block it should be what local what block local are we gonna block do? are we gonna use Yes, right. So, you know, if you're doing a dentistry and you're taking out teeth, you know, not even if you're taking out teeth, you guys know you have seen some of those mouths where the inflammation in the gingivitis is causing the animal to kind of wake up under anesthesia because those gums are so painful just from cleaning. Local block that, dude. It's like lidocaine is super cheap. These are blocks that you can easily uh, learn as a technician. There are so many local block wet labs out there. I mean, not only shout out to anesthesia nerds, uh, symposium, <laughs> but also like, you know, you can go to IVEX. I know that there are things, there are local block wet labs. I know I did one with like Mary Berg at AVMA one time. So oh, yeah. there's local block wet labs out there. Um, like one of my favorite blocks is, that we started doing at our practice um, is Um, I work with an anesthesiologist and she loves ultrasound guided blocks. And when I do relief work Mm -hmm. at university of Penn, they do a lot of ultrasound guided blocks. So for any abdominal procedures, they're doing uh, tap blocks. Um, I just did one with my anesthesiologist where a dog with multiple rib fractures, we did what's called an erector spinae block. So now some of these blocks are going to be a little more advanced and you're thinking, well, I don't have the training and I don't have a fancy ultrasound and that, okay, that's fine but you can do simple infiltration blocks, right? Just a simple Mm. incisional line block. And that's going to make a huge difference when we talk about post-operative patient comfort and overall pain control. So there is a local block that you can do in your practice. You don't need to, I mean, it's great if you have the fancy equipment, but you don't have to have the fancy equipment. So whether it be a dentistry local block, right? You're doing a nucleation, you want to do a splash block. If you're doing a TICA procedure and you want to do a reticulotemporal block, let me tell you, like there is a block for everything. We can do it. Um, and if you don't know how to do it yet, you know, email me, I can hopefully put you in touch, hit up the anesthesia nerds. We can put you in touch with resources and classes. Uh, there's some really fantastic books out there on regional anesthesia techniques. So any procedure that it's about to happen, that's going to be painful should have a local block incorporated into the analgesic plan. Well, and I think this, this, I think another way to think about it too, when we're talking about anesthesia, and I think people kind of forget this part of it is yes, it controls pain, but what else does that help us with is if let's say you touch something and it's painful, right. And what happens? The patient is stimulated. They try to wake up. And then if you're not using a local block, right. We're, we're giving it a higher dose of, of inhalant. Right. And then, then once that painful stimulus is gone, right. Then, then we get deeper. So it's like, it helps prevent some of those, like, um, those peak and valleys that a lot of people complain about, like, Oh, he's just waking up and then he's too deep. Oh, he's waking up and too deep. If, and it's that multimodal pain approach, right. That, Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like, let's, yeah, let's, I, <laughs> I, uh, let's, yeah, let's I'm surprised those I don't peaks have... and valleys. <laughs> It's, it's like, I, I say, yeah, multimodal, like so many times during my lectures, because that really is important, right? We don't want to just rely on one drug class. And um, I do feel like sometimes I see this a little more in the post-operative period where I'll see animals maybe on a fentanyl CRI, which is great. Like, you know, I love a fentanyl CRI, but if they've just had like a major surgery and they're only on fentanyl CRI, then again, we want to think multimodal. We want to think two or more drug classes. They're going to be hitting those pain pathways and going, you know, up to the, the spinal cord in the brain. And we want to make sure that we're not just relying on one single agent. 
So that's important in the preoperative, that's important, right? When you're making your overall anesthetic plan, it's important in the recovery period to always be approaching it from looking at a multimodal approach, right? Not just throwing heavy doses of opioids at our patients. Uh, and you bring up a really good point that when we do a multimodal approach, right? Small amounts of multiple drug classes for maximum effect, then we don't have to rely so heavily on just keeping our patients at a, you know, a SIBO level of four. Of course we could do that, right? We could just turn them up to four and they probably wouldn't move. Um, but then they'd become <laughs> hypotensive, they'd be hypoventilating, their temperature would start to drop. And again, that's a that's a roller coaster that I don't want to be on. So no, why nope. not just right? So just get a local block <laughs> on board, then you can keep your inhalant lower which will reduce the number of side effects from your inhalant. And that will make the, again, the procedure overall safer and better for your patient. Uh, so the other part in pre-op, I mean, you kind of talked about it too, is like looking at the history, like I think knowing if there's other, other issues that we're dealing with, because especially internal medicine, yeah, like all of our internal medicines have comorbidities. Yeah, I think <laughs> so. that I think further down in the sheet, like I did say, I think there was like a subsection on cor- like history or comorbidities or something or diagnosis. I can't remember, but I was like, yeah, there definitely are things that, like, we oh, want to know. Yeah. Like for me, you know, if it's a senior pet, I we usually will want to have a chest rad before surgery. If it is, you know, we want to have a pre-op ECG Mm. before surgery. If it's a diabetic patient, right? Are they a well-controlled diabetic is, you know, are, how often are we going to be checking their sugars under anesthesia and are we going to supplement? And if so, with what? And like that, you know, stuff needs to be worked out before we get into anesthesia, Um, you know, and animals with, liver issues, right? If I, or if we're about to do surgery and I want to know, you know, uh, what are their coags? And, you know, before we get into something like this, uh, I think that that's something we, you know, have to consider and talk with our clinicians about. So yes, I think that if we're talking about pre-op, certainly get that hands-on physical exam, look at your patient, get to know your patient, and then read through the record because it is going to be very important to note, right? Is your patient a... I don't know, let's say that they are, I mean, nothing against boxers, but just let's use, you know, they're a 10 year old (laughs) boxer that has a history of, you know, occasional collapse, but they're not on any, they've never had a cardiac workup. I mean, you could like, let me tell you before that animal goes under anesthesia to clean its teeth, we're going to make sure that we get a ECG. We're going to get a chest rad, right? Right. We're going to do some of these things. Um, to work up that if we see something in the history that might alert us to that, right? If we have an older cat that already has elevated kidney uh, um, levels, we're going to talk with the clinician and usually I'll say to them like, hey, with this cat, I know it's gonna be under anesthesia and if it's a chill cat and we give it maybe a little bit of gabapentin, can we put a catheter in it and get some fluid started on it beforehand? Gonna prime it before we get them under inhalant anesthesia. So certainly looking at the history, anything that you think could be like a red flag, bringing that up with your clinician and talking about what the plan is going to be, because again, maybe previously they had a run of VPCs, 
but you know, it was post splenectomy and it, that's just something that happens. And so you could see that, but then talk to the clinician and say, Hey, I know last time when the dog was here for a splenectomy, it had VPCs after, do we need to run an ECG beforehand? And then the clinician Mm. can just make that, you know, determination of whether or not they want to pursue something or not. But I think for us, like our job as technicians is always to advocate for the patient, but to really go through the pre-op history and see, is there anything that could present itself during surgery and anesthesia? And if so, how can I prepare, talk with your clinician, get supplies ready, run additional diagnostic tests before anesthesia? Yeah. And I think too, like for us, it's like, remember our doctors are people, right. And they are probably have like 10 different cases that they're thinking about. So you bringing something up like, oh yeah, the, so the last time when he had a splenectomy, he had VPCs, do we want to, and they go, oh, that's right. I forgot he had that. Right. Like that's Mm -hmm. not, you know, that splenectomy isn't something that's specific to this particular incident, but it's like, oh yeah, I forgot, you know, that's a really good point that you bring up. And, and I've heard that with doctors, right? Like if you have that mm-hmm. relationship you can be like, Hey, what about this? And they go, oh yeah, that's a really good point. Let's, let's worry about it and do something or be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm not worried about it, but then, but then they're aware of it <laughs> and they get to right. make that final say versus we thought about it and didn't say anything. And then something happens and you're like, right. Oh, that's right. It had a splenectomy and they're like, Oh crap. I forgot about that. Yeah. Again, they're human as much as our doctors sometimes don't think they're human. They are. <laughs> yeah. And kind of one thing you, you bring up that is important as well to not only read through the record and the past physical exams or past history, but also past anesthetic events, right? Yeah. I want to know when's the last time this patient had anesthesia. And if so, what happened during that anesthesia? Because let me tell you, if you send me a record that says, you know, had anesthesia for dentistry two years ago, anesthesia uneventful. No, I'm going to call you and ask you to send me the actual anesthesia record. Like I want to see what drugs were used. How did that patient react to those drugs? you right. Because did you give that patient, you know, um, for example, I had a, animal that I was going to do a GI, uh, we were going to do a scope and a biopsy on this cat, one and a half year old cat. And it had just had anesthesia the day before. So uh, for sedation for radiographs and catheter placement. So it gets to me, it's going to have a scope. I look at it. I know, okay, it had anesthesia yesterday. So let me look through the record and see what did they use? How did the anesthesia go? You know, right. What happened with the patients? Like how was their blood pressure? Did they put him on an inhalant and he immediately tanked his blood pressure? That's something I want to know. Cause maybe I'll choose different mm-hmm. things, you know, or maybe I might choose a different inhalant. Yeah, usually not, but I'll choose a different pre-med maybe. So I looked at this patient, it was a one and a half year old cat and it was sedated Again, simple stuff, not painful. We're just going to do some radiographs and we're going to place a catheter. So it was sedated with um, butorphanol. Again, excellent sedative. So that's nice. So it's sedated with butorphanol, midazolam, uh, and I think it was given alfaxalone as well. Wouldn't you know, later in the record, I read that the cat had a really rocky recovery and actually ended up biting uh, one of the staff members um, because it was having like this really rocky recovery. They ended up reversing the midazolam with some flumazenil and that kind of thing. And now there's caution stickers all over this cat that I'm about to anesthetize. (laughs) 
we were like, oh. I was like, oh, great, no problem. I, I love that. And actually, I don't mind spicy cats because I really think that most of the time they're just fearful and they're misunderstood mm. and they just want to be left alone, right? Like, you know, yeah. it's, they just want to be left alone. Now, to um, kind of take a step back, though, before we kind of get too in detail, what parameters should be monitored during basic anesthesia? Because not everybody does this. Like, Oh, yeah. So oh, um, if I'm looking at a record, right, if I'm looking at previously what happened anesthetically and what things are getting monitored during anesthesia, I know that not everybody has the same monitoring equipment. And I also recognize that some monitoring equipment, it, the advanced stuff is very expensive. And I don't think that everybody should be running, you know, direct invasive arterial monitoring on every single patient. Certainly that's a luxury <laughs> and I love having it on our more critical patients, but I realize that you could do really great monitoring and not have you know, a $32,000 anesthesia monitor. Don't need to have that. Um, so for me, the things that I, um, if I had to put in order of what I think is the most important anesthetic monitoring parameters uh, or equipment that you're going to need to monitor anesthesia, number one is a dedicated anesthetist that is monitoring that patient. So that, that means that that technician is only in charge of monitoring that patient. They are not in charge of dental cleaning and radiographs and occasionally writing down numbers. They are dedicated to watching that patient under anesthesia. That dedicated anesthesia technician has a stethoscope, has a watch, right? Um, they are putting their hands on that animal. They're feeling peripheral pulses. Um, they are listening to the chest. They might even utilize an esophageal stethoscope. They're looking at our CRT, et cetera. I want people to always be thinking about what you can do manually without a machine. Machines are great, but I also want you to be a hands-on anesthetist when you can. Certainly, if you have a big blue drape over, you got to, you know, do some drape diving to like, you know, feel pulses. But I think that that's important as well. So I can feel the pulse beforehand. And then if you're feeling changes, you know, you want to be able to say that to your, to your doctor under anesthesia. As far as like a, an actual monitor goes, I know that a lot of places will have an SpO2 or even a portable SpO2, and that's great, right? That's going to tell us how much oxygen is being carried by that hemoglobin. Um, it's going to give us some information. Almost always, they're going to give you a heart rate, that kind of thing. So that's good information, but it's not like super great. And for me, uh, as an anesthesia like dork, I really want to know like end tidal CO2. For me, end tidal CO2 is the monitoring parameter that like, they're going to give you the hard facts. It's not going to lie to you. And if any, and if honestly, if things go down in anesthesia and things are getting like bad and I'm worried, like I can see a heart rate depending on the drugs. I can see a bradycardia and not get too worked up about it. If I see my end tidal CO2, right, go from 50 to 30 to 19, to, I know things are bad and I need to correct this. And like this patient is circling the drain, what's going on? So end tidal CO2 for me is the, that's the like gold standard. I love having end tidal CO2. And then I pair that with my blood pressure. Now, if you're using a direct arterial catheter to really monitor you know, blood pressure, that is the most accurate. However, if you don't and you're using your oscillometric or a Doppler, I am great with those things too. With those, it's just look at your trends, right? I don't want you to take one Doppler reading and freak out and then start giving a bunch of fluid boluses. Give, take a couple of Doppler reading, talk with your clinician, hey, I noticed the blood pressure is trending downward. 
I'm going to lighten up with the anesthetic here. And how do you feel about a five mil per keg fluid bolus, right? And then you start that conversation with your doctor. Antidal CO2, blood pressure. Next, ECG, right? Every monitor is going to give you the ECG. And this is what drives me bananas, right? Everybody loves an ECG and I get it. An ECG is super sexy. And I say this in my lecture, okay? Because nobody on Gray's Anatomy is like, they're not looking at a patient who's crashing and they're not looking at the end tidal CO2. Nobody is. You know what they're looking at? The ECG, because <laughs> it moves around and it's sexy and then it flatlines and then everybody's like, ah, clear, blah, right? So nobody's <laughs> like, oh, what is the end tidal CO2? Because that's an indirect measure of cardiac output. Nobody, nobody, because it's not sexy, okay? It's hard facts. I can't help it. That's just the way it is. That's Hollywood. But ECG <laughs> is important, but at the same time, for me, if you had to say, what monitoring parameters can you not live without? I'd tell you that I want my end tidal CO2. And if I can't have invasive blood pressure, I want a Doppler. Like for me, those are yep. my things that I absolutely need, right? And ECG, SpO2, temperature, those are all things that are very important as well. Um, I always tell people don't forget about the temperature because that's one of those things that like, kind of creeps up on you or you, it's, again, it's not as cool and sexy as the ECG and the SpO2. So they don't, people maybe don't monitor as often. I've been into some clinics where, you know, animals are coming off the table at 91, 90 degrees. Um, so Oof. definitely, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen it. Um, so keep an eye on temperature. And that's one of those things. Again, you don't need a fancy esophageal temperature probe. Use your rectal temperature probes. These are, they should be very cost effective for your facility and monitor the trends overall. But antidote CO2, blood pressure, ECG, SpO2, temperature, all very important, but not as important as a dedicated technician with their hands on the animal, watching the animal, because I'm sure that everybody who has monitored anesthesia has at one time had a little spidey sense that something isn't quite right, or the patient isn't breathing quite right, or their mucous membrane color looks a little off, and something isn't quite right, and it just hasn't showed up on the monitor yet. Or... Yeah alternatively, the monitor is telling you some crazy stuff. And you're like, this can't be possibly right, right? <laughs> I think we've all had this happen where the SpO2 is like 86 on a patient that's pink and on 100% oxygen via an endotracheal tube. Uh, so that you're, like, yeah. you're like, what? So let me move it. And then it was on the toe. So I'll just move it to the, the tongue or maybe the ear. And then you use, move it over here. And now it's 100%, right? So those things are finicky. Don't take one reading with a, like, you know, don't take one reading and then institute a bunch of treatments. But at the same time, be ready. So I, I say to technicians, just as you're ready with your drug choices and your local box and all that stuff, be ready that if your patient's going to be under anesthesia for, you know, four to five hours, then you know that you're probably going to develop some hypothermia, hypotension. How are we going to deal with those? You know, we mm -hmm. don't, I try to have those conversations worked out before we get into anesthesia. Now, certainly unexpected complications can arise, but if I know I'm going into a, uh, let's say an older cat dentistry, that's going to be three and to four hours long because of multiple extractions. It's an older cat, you know, it's going to get hypotensive under anesthesia. So what am I going to do? And I usually try not to, I, I let my clinician know what's happening with the patient, but I'm usually, I want to work out beforehand what are we going to do to initiate treatment, right? I don't want to mm. talk while you're trying to pull that canine out and your brain is there. That's not the great time for me to say, 
hey, what dose of dopamine do you want me to use for this cat? Like, no, let's have this conversation beforehand. Hey, if it gets hypotensive, right? And it's a cat and we don't want to fluid overload it. Okay, let's try one, maybe two fluid boluses and lowering inhalant. And if that doesn't work, then we'll go to dopamine and we'll start at five, right? Talk about those things beforehand, because when your surgeon has their hands deep in a chest, right? <laughs> like when they're yeah. removing a heart-based tumor, that is like the last thing they want to think about at that time is, you know, what dose of uh, norepi do you want me to get? Like, no, let's talk about that beforehand and have that worked out. So it's all about preparation. So let's say, let's say we got through our procedure and um, things went great. Our patient's doing well. We're getting ready to, you know, close up and do all that stuff. Let's, let's talk about the post-op phase because I, I, I think we're better about it than we used to be for sure. Used to be like, all right, excavated. And then you just kind of like put them in a cage and sometimes monitored them, but (laughs) There's definitely ideal ways to kind of go through that post-op stuff. So lay it on us. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, this could be in itself like a whole hour long or more uh, talk, but really key points for recovery is again, having a dedicated technician assigned to that pet somebody who's going to be going in and checking in. And the amount of times that you check in on that patient, is really going to depend on Again, what are their comorbidities? Are they still on fluids? Are they on analgesic CRIs? Are they on something like a dexmedetomidine CRI where I really want somebody, you know, with their hands on that patient and checking in on that patient, especially because we know about any, you know, cardiac event that could possibly happen if we have a patient on a a dexmed CRI or an analgesic CRI, something like that. So if we have a patient that is, you know, more critical or high risk, I like to have a dedicated technician with that patient and then almost them going in every 15 minutes. Um, certainly at the practices that I work at, we don't extubate. We actually extubate the patients in um, the prep area. So we will take them out of surgery and go back into prep where we have access to oxygen and all that stuff. I know that mm. that's not, that's not, something that every practice has the capability to do. So sometimes you're taking them back to their home cage and you're sitting with them until they're able to be extubated. And I think that, you know, timing of extubation is important as well. You do want to make sure that that patient has some reflex, like we, do they have any palpebral reflexes, right? Are they still Mm. at a like overly sedate stage of anesthesia? If they can't, you know, Um, especially if you've given any drugs, like any paralytic drugs, right? You need to make sure that that patient is able to breathe on their own and ventilate properly. Um, I like to make sure I use a portable SpO2. And I actually use my portable SpO2 a lot more in recovery than in in any other area. So in recovery, um, I want to make sure that that patient, before I pull that tube, they have some reflexes, maybe they have swallowed, Uh, They are usually in sternal position instead of laying down on one side, especially if you have like a really heavy dog, we don't want them laying down on one side and getting atelectasis there. So prop them up, we make, um, we put little, we put roll towels up and we elevate their head. So we have a nice clean line for an airway. I want to make sure that on room air, they're able to pull socks uh, effectively. I want to see their chest moving see those reflexes before I pull that tube. And then 
It's not like, oh, I pulled the tube, everything's fine, close the door, walk away, right? We want to make sure, well, I mean, I'm going to be honest, in my very first vet job, that's what we did, man. Oh, you swallowed one time, Mm -hmm. you have a palpebral reflex, pull that tube, I don't come and check on you again. Yeah, until the end of the day. So um, we know that that can be a dangerous time for our patients. So for those depending on the ASA status of the patient, you know, if they're uh, young, healthy, if they're a little more critical, that is going to depend, that's going to help determine how often we might be going in and checking on them. But certainly for more critical patients, I have had technicians that they basically just sit there with the patient until the patient is moving around up to temp, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it is an ASA too, it's a spay, neuter, they're relatively healthy, they don't have any other issues that we might be worried about. And maybe I say to my technicians, okay, you, you know, set a timer and we'll check on them every 15 to 20 until they are moving around, standing up, up to temp, eating, that kind of thing. But if they're still yeah. lateral or they're still, you know, unconscious, we need to have technicians monitoring them. Yeah. And I think, um, this is like a big thing that we always talk about is monitoring for any like aspiration afterwards and, you know, have suction available if, if you can, right. Um, ideally you have some sort of suction just in case. Um, cause uh, we've all, we've all probably seen at least one patient that's done that post-op as like the regurge and yes. Ugh, no fun. Hopefully yeah. it's not a brachycephalic no thing that gets pneumonia. <laughs> yeah. That's how that works. Yeah. Um, and then it's, you yeah. know, to bring up brachycephalic patients in particular, right. We mm. know that they have a higher incidence of regurgitation uh, and vomiting just based on their body conformation. we know that we're giving them drugs like opioids, like inhalants, they're going to increase their chance of vomiting, et cetera. So that's why like, you know, um, using things like meropitin, um, or maybe mm-hmm. even an ondansetron for those particular patients. Um, for our brachycephalic patients, we almost always are giving them a dose of ondansetron. Uh, right. Before we we they use it in our pre-op. Yeah. I mean, we're like, yeah. here you go. Just, just you take go. it you, now. You need this. Just take it. Um, and, but for brachycephalics, I also say to, oh, it not only, I like to have suction available, but I like to have extra intubation materials needed Mm. because brachycephalics, right? We know because of their anatomy and their body conformation, the way that they are just put together because of those averted saccules, because of that elongated soft palate, right? They can seem very aware. They might have a palpebral, but you go to pull that tube and they can occlude very quickly. And if there's not anybody watching them, right? If there's nobody there directly, then they can desaturate and it can go downhill really quick. Um, so that's yeah. why I say, if you pull the tube and then you notice things aren't looking right, you need to be prepared. So I tell people always have a little bit of extra induction agent with you. So if you needed to give a little titch of propofol, mm-hmm. re-intubate, have, um, usually we have these like little baskets that we keep on the, the cages in recovery. Yeah. So for brachycephalics, we almost always have an extra tube and an extra little bit of induction agent and a laryngoscope there ready to go. Smart, smart. See, see, there's nuggets, you guys. (laughs) Which leads us into our tip of the week too, because I can't tell, but I think you're a little passionate about our tip of the week. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. I I have Mm. so many tips of the week. (laughs) Well, my tip of the week used to be, you know, 
don't use the ISO box to, uh, we're not oh. boxing down cats anymore, but I feel like I've, we're getting better. Like I've gotten through oh, yeah. grown hopefully, from that. <laughs> hopefully people, so I can retire from that now. And now the new one is so like, it's the tip of the week. Just please use a laryngoscope. Um, like I know I've just been into so many practices where it's almost like a badge of honor that I can, I don't need a laryngoscope to intubate and I can intubate without a laryngoscope. 100%. Yeah, I can drive a car without a seatbelt too, but I uh, don't because this tool has been designed to make it safer, make intubation safer for my patients, right? So why not use the tool that was designed to make this practice safer for your patients? Um, and then if you really want to get deep into it, using the correct type of laryngoscope for your patient's body confirmation and anatomy is important too, right? Because there's a reason why I have a Miller blade on one arm and a Mac blade on the other. It's because in certain instances, a Macintosh blade is going to be preferred and open up and let me visualize the airway better than a Miller. So like these things are really important. And I think that anytime that we can make anesthesia safer for our patients, put your ego aside and do whatever's going to be in the best interest of the patient. Nice. Love it. So if you ever see Tasha in person, you'll have to ask about her Mac and Miller. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't, oh man, don't worry. Cause I will give you the like 20 minute spiel on why, uh, why I sometimes use Mac and why I sometimes use Miller. Oh, the poor kids, uh, at <laughs> when I was doing a relationship to Penn <laughs> and like, one person asked me, well, what's the difference? And I was like, Ooh, are you ready? Sit down. That'll just be another episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now for the question of the week. All right. So this week's question of the week is, I'm going to say it's twofold. It one, the first part is going to be what, uh, like local or regional block do you use that you love? And then the second part of that is what local or regional block would you like to learn? Cause I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you don't do one yet. And you're like, I just want to learn the first one. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this. All right. Um, Asha, what's your favorite local block? Um, the sacred coccygeal block for blocked cats. Ooh, yeah that's it's a just good been, one it's just such a game changer when it comes to like these sick block cats and like and a well-placed sc block for erythral obstruction cat is not only just saves you so much time but it makes the patient so much more comfortable in the post-operative period um and mm. because it completely it like completely desensitizes like the penis so before when you're like you know like fussing with the penis to try to get it out of the prep use and like get it to like poke out and say hi right it desensitizes everything and everything is relaxed so the penis just does that on its own it just relaxes and comes out it's it's freaking amazing like when i tell people like this block will change the way you treat urethral obstruction cats and when they finally see it i had said this in my lecture i was like you know i go into practices and i teach and i tell them this is a block and i usually will i can teach local i do teach local blocks in practice two practices and i've had a couple now where they will send me pictures of the cat's like penis as it's like relaxed and coming out and i was like you know how many like random cat penis pictures i get sent (laughs) to me (laughs) 
That's I mean, uh, great. interesting tidbit. <laughs> I, love, I love the tea. <laughs> that's awesome. I, that's, I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to talk to, uh, I'm going to have to talk to my emergency department about that. That sounds, yeah. that sounds like definitely something we can teach about. Oh, and it's so easy. Like, it. You know, it's not, you don't need a spinal needle. You don't need any fancy equipment. This is an easy oh. block. You're not going into the epidural space. You don't have to worry about that. Um, it, it really stays back there, but I recommend it. I mean, for block cats, it's amazing, but also for PU surgeries, for anal seculectomies, um, mm. for tail amputation or tail degloving, it's going to desensitize the tail, the anus, the penis, the perineum, all that. But nice. without, with, but it's better than an epidural in this sense, because usually the blocked cats, we maybe sometimes we do the, like the clients don't have the money. So we'll do the like treat them and treat them where we don't keep yeah. them overnight on fluids, which is not preferred, but sometimes you have to. And in this instance, it's, it's a little bit better than an epidural because it's so caudal that you're not getting hind limb involvement or urine retention the same way you oh. would with an epidural, right? So an epidural, you'd have to worry about them not being able to use their back legs for hours, but with the SC block, it doesn't affect the hind limbs because you're going so caudal. So oh, it's just it. like That's things cool. that need to happen in the hind end. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it's the best. What, um, what reference do you have for, cause you mentioned there was a book, I think that for regional and local blocks. Yep. Cause uh, we'll definitely, uh, we'll put that in the notes. Cause I think, cause I know like I've asked about, you know, reference materials for that, for some of the stuff we would do in I am. So like, a you know, if you're doing rhinoscopy, you can do like the, um, is it the infraorbital? infraorbital. Yep. Yeah. Uh, bilateral infraorbital is really nice yeah. for rhinoscopy. Um, hang on. There's two books. It's the manual of small animal regional anesthesia, illustrated anatomy for nerve blocks. Um, Pablo Otero, Diego Portella. <laughs> Um, and we'll definitely, we'll add um, a bunch of links in the resources for both Tasha, how to get in touch with Tasha. Like if you have a clinic that, you know, wants to, to bring her on over and to do some local regional blocks or other amazing things she teaches and, and about, you can get in touch with her. We'll put the links for anesthesia nerds and all things anesthesia nerds and the VTS and some of the books that she recommends. So definitely check out the show notes for that. Um, amazing information. <laughs> yeah. There's so much information out there. Um, certainly email me if you guys have particular questions um, or yeah, you just want to talk about anesthesia pain management. As I say, I only know about <laughs> anesthesia pain management and tacos. Other than that, I have no idea what's going on. Oh my God. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, Thank you, Tasha, for talking about this stuff that Jordan and I could have talked about, but it may have been a yes. little painful. <laughs> we appreciate it. Plus, I always love listening to you. Oh, thanks so much, you guys. Yeah, no problem. All right. Anything we need to cover before we head out for the week? I think that's Other it. Other than Tasha's amazing. Tasha's oh. amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Tacos are also amazing. And <laughs> we're just going to go. Exactly. Look at that cat. Ah, you guys, I, we'll have to, we'll have to show pictures, an adorable oh little tuxedo God. kitty cat. Ah. <laughs> All 
All right, guys. Well, have a wonderful week. Keep getting your learn on and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye, Tasha. Bye. for listening to today's episode of the internal medicine for vet techs podcast if you like what you heard we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode want to give us a boost please leave a review on itunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com talk to you next week bye